1240, Minnesota, Eric Brown et al. versus American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees et al. And 21-1684, Minnesota, Mark Fellows et al. versus Minnesota Association of Professional Employees. Uh, good morning, your honors. Uh, may I please just a moment, just a moment, please. If I don't get the pinning done, I'll lose you, lose you in the middle of the argument. Very good. Mr. Schwab. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, may it please the court. My name is Jeffrey Schwab. I represent the plaintiff's appellants in both the Brown versus AFSCME Council 5 and Fellows versus Minnesota Association of Professional Employees cases. Um, as uh, we've heard in the last argument, uh, this case is, is very similar except for it provides a, a very narrow question before this court, and that is, whether there's a categorical good faith defense to section 1983 that shields a defendant from damages liability for depriving citizens of their constitutional rights if the defendant acted under color of law before it was held unconstitutional. And uh, your honor, Judge uh, Lokman um, asked a question in the last case, his first question about Judge Fisher in uh, the concurring opinion in the Diamond case, uh, first I'd like to point out that Judge Fisher's concurring opinion rejects what the unions in both cases are advocating for here, and that is the categorical good faith defense. And uh, You can read his concurring opinion along with Judge Phipps' dissenting opinion as to why they believe that the, uh, the good categorical good faith defense as it's been adopted by their circuit courts uh, is wrong. And, and those, for those same reasons, we believe that a categorical good faith defense is wrong. Well, and then secondly, counsel, counsel, it strikes me this is just an argument for you know law schools, law school professors. Judge Fish, Judge Fisher reached a result that would would suggest to me we affirm here. And so you're telling me he didn't he didn't endorse an argument you're opposing. Well, we don't we don't have to we don't have to endorse the argument you're opposing in order to affirm. So let's let's get on to uh, you know what matters. Well, that's true, Your Honor. Except for that, the broad categorical good faith defense uh, could have much uh, longer and 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 unfortunate uh, consequences for cases not just like this one. And so. Um, there is, I think, more. I think well, I'm there not, is. I'm not in the business of rendering advisory opinions because the Constitution doesn't let me, and and so these these cause arguments leave me very cold, frankly. Fair point, Your Honor. Uh, I'd also uh, I ask you to look at Judge Phipps' dissenting opinion addressing the argument that Judge Fisher makes, and I think Judge Phipps makes a good argument as to why Judge Fisher's argument is incorrect. Uh, if I can kind of summarize that, um, what Judge Phipps says is that Judge Fisher relies on the agency payment, uh, payments at issue here were not voluntary. Uh, or, I'm sorry, were, uh, he, he, he uses the, the term conducted without duress or fraud, uh, but Judge Phipps says the agency fee payments here were not voluntary 
there were garnishments that were paid to unions. He also goes on to say, more fundamentally, Judge Fisher's approach is analogous to the one that the Supreme Court did not adopt in the Wyatt case, which prompted Judge Rehnquist's dissent. I'm sorry, Chief Judge Rehnquist's dissent. Or uh, Chief Justice. You could go with Chief Justice. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry. I, that's what I meant to say. Chief Justice Rehnquist's dissent. Uh, and then Judge, Fipka, Judge Phipps goes on to say, that Section 1983 created a new statutory cause of action, not one predefined by common law. Thus, it is immaterial that no pre-1871 cause of action permitted recovery for voluntary payments that were subsequently declared unconstitutional. The Civil Rights Act of 1871 established a new cause of action, in part to provide, quote, a remedy where state law was inadequate. So I would, uh, I would ask your honors to... Uh, uh, to look at Judge Phipps' dissenting opinion on that issue and also on other issues. And uh, the first reason that I think this court should reject a categorical good faith defense is that it conflicts with the text and the purpose of Section 1983. In relevant part, Section 1983 says that every person who under color of any statute deprives a citizen of a constitutional right shall be liable to the party injured in an action of law. That proposition, the proposition that defendants' good faith reliance on a state statute exempts it from Section 1983 liability, has no basis in Section 1983's text. In fact, the proposition conflicts with the statute in two ways. Where, where, do, we, where do we get where do we get a retroact, retroactive remedy from the text? Statutes are prospective. Well, it's true, Your Honor. I, I mean. I think where we where my point is that we start at the text, uh, and and of course, obviously, this the courts have uh, adopted the text. Immunity. To me, is the text is classic is neutral. Well, my the, I think the point is that there's there's two points that I think the text provides context for. First, that the text provides that every person who deprives a party of a constitutional right shall be liable to the party injured in action of law. The good faith defense would con contradict that statement. Second, uh, an element of Section 1983 is that the defendant must act under state uh, under color of state law. So, uh, a defendant acting under color of state law can't be both an element to a Section 1983 claim and a defense to that same claim. That would render the statute self-defeating. Any private defendant that acted under color of state law as Section 1983 requires, would then be shielded from liability because it acted under, con under color of state law. That, that, that makes no sense. Um, also, I would point to uh, Judge Phipps' dissent where he talks about the purpose of Section 1983 and how the categorical good faith defense it inverts the purpose of Section 1983. Judge Phipps says, that uh, a good faith affirmative defense that is a state actor was me that is a state actor merely following state law is especially a bad fit as an atextual atextual addition to section 1983. And then finally, in Rayburg, the Supreme Court said that courts do not have license to create immunities based on the court's view of sound policy. Courts are uh, accorded immunity only when. There is a quote, a tradition of immunity so firmly rooted in the common law 
that was supported by such strong policy reasons that Congress, Congress would have specifically so provided had it wished to abolish the doctrine when it was enacted in, 19, in Section 1983. Counsel, we're not talking about immunity. That's true, Your Honor, but, um, the immune, but we're talking about an equitable defense, and the question of whether there's an immunity is no, relevant. I, that's, your, that's your characterization. Judge Fisher, and I think Judge, Judge Wood in the Seventh Circuit said we're talking about an element of the claim, not a defense to the claim. No, Your Honor, I think uh, that uh, that is confused uh, by uh, the, I think those judges are confused by the court's decision in Wyatt. So I'd like to explain uh, Wyatt, uh, Wyatt decided that, uh, Wyatt actually provides for no categorical good defense, uh, a good faith defense, uh, and Wyatt, rather, uh, a majority of, uh, or I'm sorry, the court decided a question of whether a private defendant who used an ex parte replevin statute to seize the plaintiff's property without due process of law was entitled to qualified immunity in a section 1983 claim. The court recognized the plaintiff's claims were analogous to malicious, malicious prosecution and abusive process and that at common law, private defendants could defeat a ma malicious prosecution or abusive process action if they acted without malicious malice and without probable or and with probable cause, but the Wyatt court didn't even hold that plaintiffs in that case were entitled to a claim-specific good faith defense because their actual their case actually just sought qualified immunity, which the court denied because rationales mandating qualified immunity for public officials are not applicable to private parties. The court left open in Wyatt whether defendants could raise quote an affirmative defense based on good faith and or probable, probable cause. But contrary to uh, Judge Wood and, and the other uh, judges that you mentioned, Judge Loken, uh, the conclusions uh, uh, or the defenses the judge were suggesting in why was not a categorical defense to all Section 1983 damages claims. Rather, it was a good faith defense to which the Wyatt Court are, are, was a good faith defense to the malice and probable cause elements of the specific due process claim at issue in that case. In this case, now, there counsel, are... You know, counsel, you just, you just foreshortened the text of, of, of what the Wyatt majority uh, dicta that everybody's working with. It's, it's that couldn't be entitled to an affirmative defense based on good faith or, or that 1983 suits against private parties could require, require plaintiffs to carry additional burdens. So that, that explicitly leaves open the distinction that, that Judge Fisher and Judge Wood were um, capturing. I don't, think so. I don't think so, Your Honor. I think what they're referring to is the specific claims in the element that is brought under Section what, what 1983. Is there, what is there in the words of plaintiffs carrying additional burdens that suggest they're talking about defenses? I'm, I think we're, Your Honor, I think we're talking about the same thing. I, I, what I'm saying is that the Wyatt Court is saying that the uh, no, no, no wait, 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 counsel, just basic litigation, the same thing, an element of the claim versus an affirmative defense has tremendous significance. 
with respect to burdens of both going forward and proof. That's true, Your Honor. And, and I, I think what you and I are both agreeing on is that the Wyatt Court was talking about, a def was not talking about a defense, but was talking about the actual elements of the underlying claim. And in fact, in, uh, in Judge, I believe, Judge Rank Chief Justice Rehnquist's uh, uh, opinion, he mentions that the def good faith defense is just is sort of a, uh, a way of characterizing the underlying elements of the claim that we're talking about. In that case, the underlying elements required essentially bad faith. In order to win, the, def the uh, plaintiffs would have to show bad faith in order to get damages. In that case, they, they, it was a malicious prosecution case. But we're talking about a First Amendment case, and there's nothing in the First Amendment that requires the plaintiffs to show bad faith or malicious prosecution or any of uh, any such thing. In fact, the Supreme Court in Janus didn't yeah, require. I, I think I think the New York Times lawyers would disagree with that. Well, I, I'm. They, they just got. They just got uh, uh, former Governor Palin's suit thrown out on that on the basis of failure to prove malice. Yes, but for her first, for her first Amendment claims. And in that case, you're talking about the First Amendment exceptions to torts, but in this case, we're talking about compelled speech. And in Janus, the Supreme Court did not require that the defendants show, or that the plaintiffs show that the unions acted in bad faith. That was, I mean, if that was the case, then then Janus wouldn't have come out that that same way. And the third reason that uh, this court should reject the good faith defense is because most courts, most of the circuit courts of appeals that have recognized the good faith defense have asserted policy interests in equality and fairness uh, as a justification for the defense. Uh, but the Supreme Court has repeatedly stated that courts should not create quotable exceptions to legislative requirements or prohibitions that are unqualified by the statutory text. It's for Congress to determine whether Section 1983 litigation became, becomes too burdensome, and if so, what remedial action is appropriate. That's the Supreme Court in Tower versus Glover in 1984. Those courts don't have a license to create immunities based solely on the court's view of sound policy. The same reasoning applies to principles uh, that principles of equality justify creating a defense for private defendants that is similar to the immunities enjoyed by some public defendants. Supreme Court has held that private defendants in 1983 cases are not entitled to qualified immunity. So fairness does not dictate that the courts can therefore create an equivalent defense to 1983 liability for private defendants. The lower courts and the several courts of, circuit courts of appeals that have created a categorical good faith defense, which is in essence qualified immunity in everything but name. Further, fairness does not dictate that the courts provide a categor categorical good faith to private defendants in 1983 cases because fairness to the victims of constitutional deprivations requires enforcing Section 1983 as written. It's not fair to make victims of constitutional deprivations pay for the union's unconstitutional conduct, nor is it fair to let wrongdoers keep ill-gotten gains. I'd point to, since I'm running out of time here before my rebuttal, I'd point to the Supreme Court's decision in Owen uh, 
rejecting quali- or g- rejecting uh, immunity for municipalities, and the three reasons that they give there uh, for why uh, municipalities should not receive immunity, um, qualified immunity, and I believe those three reasons, which are in our brief, are good reasons why this court should not create a good faith defense for private defendants in these cases. And I, I will leave the rest of my time for rebuttal. Very good. Let's see, Mr. Dion, are you next? Uh, yes. Can everyone hear me? It's yes, good for me. Sure. Okay. Um, uh, I'm Leon Diane, and I'm representing AFSCME Council 5, uh, the defendant in the Brown case. I'd like to begin by addressing what I understand to be the main argument being asserted by the plaintiffs in the Brown and Fellows cases. And that argument, we, we just heard it from Mr. Schwab, is that um, the good faith defense applies only where the underlying constitutional claim has as an element that the defendant acted in bad faith. And um, Mr. Schwab's argument, as I understand it, is that um, is that if you look at Wyatt and the cases where the good faith defense first took hold, uh, including the, there's also cited in the, in the plaintiff's briefs, the Second Circuit's uh, Pinsky decision, their argument is that if you look at those cases, um, they are procedural due process cases. And the argument is that, uh, that in procedural due process uh, cases, the plaintiff has to prove bad faith to make out a violation of the due process clause. And that is the supposed distinction between those cases and a First Amendment compelled speech case. But right out of the gate, that argument collapses uh, because its basic premise is wrong. Procedural due process claims do not require the plaintiff to prove bad faith. Um, We've pointed this out in our briefs. Uh, We've quoted from Judge Timkovich's concise statement of the point in uh, the Dodds versus Richardson case where he stated, and I'll read uh, a, a short passage from there. He says, procedural due process violations focus on the sufficiency of the procedural protections afforded the plaintiff, not the state of mind of the officials who establish or apply the policies. And the plaintiffs have no answer to this point. Uh, The truth is that both a compelled speech case and a procedural due process case can be proven out in terms of whether there's a violation when you set aside remedy, which I'll get to in a minute, but the violation can be established in either context without proof of bad faith. Um, And that's clear, not just from Judge Timkovich's uh, concise observation, the Pinsky case, um, which is one of the early good faith defense cases out of the Second Circuit, before it got to the Second Circuit, the Supreme Court had already determined uh, when that case was there before the court under the name of Connecticut versus Doar, that um, that the Connecticut statute at issue there was invalid, again, not because of any bad faith in enacting it or implying it or applying it, but simply because uh, the statute uh, did not accord sufficient procedural protections to debtors. So the whole effort to, to distinguish the post-Janus good faith cases from the pre-Janus good faith cases doesn't work. Um, and that brings me to a second point here, which is that um, even though the plaintiffs in Wyatt and Pinsky could establish all of the elements of a Section 1983 claim for prospective injunctive and declaratory relief and validating the attachment statutes in those cases without proof of anyone having any bad state of mind, what they could not do 
is secure monetary relief as a remedy against the private party defendants that they sued. And this is why the plaintiffs are not only wrong in making the specific point that I just discussed, uh, that procedural due process claims are somehow distinguishable from the Janus cases. It also uh, illustrates why they're wrong in their whole broad thematic point. And that thematic point, um, as I understand it, rests on the assertion that it's anomalous to treat as a defense to a 1983 claim that the defendant relied on a seemingly valid state statute when an element of a 1983 claim is that the defendant acted under color of state law. But that anomaly disappears once you recognize that the union's position here and the position of the defendants in all of the good faith defense cases is that good faith reliance on a seemingly valid statute is not a defense to the 1983 cause of action. It's a defense only to the particular remedy that's being sought here, which is retrospective monetary relief. And once you take account of that, then, then this whole notion that there's some anomaly also collapses. Um, the reality is that Section 1983 is accomplishing a lot of work when it allows plaintiffs aggrieved by all different kinds of constitutional, uh, excuse me, unconstitutional statutes to have those statutes invalidated by the federal courts and to enjoin both private and government action um, that is unconstitutional or that threatens unconstitutional conduct. So the notion that the seven circuits um, who have all rejected claims just like the plaintiffs here have been unfaithful to section 1983 is, is mistaken. Um, and as I, I won't repeat uh, the presentation by my colleague, uh, Mr. Pitts in the first case, um, where he, he walked the court through uh, the Luger opinion and how um, just in the very case where the court first even recognized that private parties could be proper defendants in this species of case. In that same instance, the court recognized in, in footnote 23 that you would have to uh, uh, ameliorate the harsh impact of that rule in monetary relief cases by recognizing at the remedial phase um, an ability of the private party to uh, show that it acted reasonably and in good faith uh, reliance on a seemingly valid statute. So I don't, uh, taking Judge Loken's admonition at the beginning that, that, we, that we have very similar issues here, and, um, and I'm sure the court doesn't want to hear repetition, I will leave it at that, and, uh, but certainly answer any questions that the court may have. And, and if there are none, I'll yield my time to my colleague, Mr. Cronland. All right, thank you, Mr. Cronland. Good morning, and may it please the court. I'm Scott Cronland. I represent the union in the Fellows case. Um, we're in the same position as the, the other unions. There, there's no allegation that my client was doing anything other than following state law and what was the Supreme Court precedent at the time. I don't have anything to add to the presentations of union counsel, and I, I know that the court has already see, received a lot of argument on these issues, so unless the court has questions for me, I'll yield my time back to the court. I don't have any further questions. Um, let's move to uh, rebuttal then. Mr. Schwab. Thank you, Your Honors. Um, I just want to point out uh, that uh, 
Mr. Diane mentioned uh, Mr. Pitt's mentioning of Luger, and I do not believe Luger is in any way supportive of the good faith defense or uh, our defendant's arguments here. In fact, the court in a footnote in Luger speculated that perhaps a defense should be established for private defendants who invoke seemingly valid state laws. But then the court stated, quote, we need not reach the question of the availability of such a defense to private individuals at this juncture, end quote, and that, quote, we in intimate no views concerning the relief that might be appropriate if a violation is shown. So there's, there's nothing in Luger that in any way uh, should lead any court to believe that there is any such defense uh, supported by Luger. Um, secondly, um, the, uh, the argument that, uh, that the defense uh, is only uh, retrospective to monetary relief, I, I don't think makes, uh, makes a difference. Um, in fact, uh, if this court uh, takes into consideration retroactivity uh, in Harper, the Supreme Court has, has said that its decisions are presumpt presumptively retroactive unless the court specifically says that the decision is not to be applied retroactively. And there's nothing in Janus that specifically states the decision is not retroactive. In the Supreme Court's decision in Reynoldsville casket, the Supreme Court held that courts cannot create equitable remedies based on a party's reliance on a statute before it's held unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. In that case, uh, the issue was an Ohio statute that effectively granted plaintiffs a longer statute of limitations for suing out-of-state defendants. Uh, the Supreme Court had earlier held that the statute was unconstitutional, but an Ohio state court permitted a plaintiff to proceed with a lawsuit that was filed under the statute before the Supreme Court invalidated it. The plaintiff asserted that this was permissive, a permissible equitable remedy because she relied on the statute before it was held unconstitutional. The Supreme Court rejected that contention, holding that the state court could not do an end run around retroactivity by creating an equitable remedy based on the party's reliance on a statute before it was held unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. Yet that's exactly what the lower court and what defendants are asking this court to do, provide an equitable defense based on the union's reliance on a statute later recognized as unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. So I would add that point to the points that I've made, the points in my briefs. I also recommend Judge Phipps' dissent in the Third Circuit Diamond Opinion, and uh, I'm happy to answer any additional questions that uh, your honors may have. Otherwise, I'll yield my time. Well, very good. The court appreciates counsel's efforts to uh, uh, cover these difficult issues thoroughly, but avoid without unnecessary duplication. Uh, and we do have uh, your, your very good briefs to work with, plus uh, a lot of views from our colleagues around the, in circuits around the country. So we will uh, take the cases under advisement and uh, do our best with them.